Welcome to the Evidence-Based Therapist, where we read so you don't have to. Here you'll find clinicians and researchers discussing cutting-edge research from the embodied relational sciences, explaining why and how people work together to find healing. Thanks for checking out this podcast. The Evidence-Based Therapist is a project of Think Beyond, a listener-funded media house focused on connecting humans through therapy and art. To keep this podcast going, we'd love for you to support us on Patreon by searching patreon.com slash thinkbeyondhealing in your favorite web browser. And don't forget to check out our new merch by going to our website at connectbeyondhealing.com and clicking on the merchandise tab. Hey, welcome back to the Evidence-Based Therapist, where we read so you don't have to, but we harmonize. We would love it if if you you did. did. And research too. And write (laughs) with us. W-R, not not R-I. You don't have to be right right. with an R. I'm not right. But (laughs) we do invite you into writing. Writing. Which is with a W. Okay. Anyway, close the parenthetical. Welcome back. (laughs) Brackets on. It's uh, been a while. Yeah, been a a time. What have we been doing? Like writing or something? Writing or something? (laughs) Or like talking to people? Talking to people. Reading. Reading so you don't have to. (laughs) But! (laughs) (laughs) How many times can we actually bring that up? I feel like it's programmed now. Once you say the first part, I have to say the second part. (laughs) Those neurons can't inhibit. They fired together, my yeah. friends. <laughs> they are wired together. Uh, now shall not separate. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of things Siegel that can't together, <laughs> <laughs> let no man separate. <laughs> Rip. Uh, mm. Where where your attention is, there Dan Siegel will be also. <laughs> Wow, we're doing a lot we of good go integrative back work. Through <laughs> these parables, and <laughs> it's an update. People are going to be like, "Dude, these guys are obsessed with Dan Siegel." <laughs> there, I think there's some Jesus overtones going on with the worship. Have no fear. Doesn't matter, Dan Siegel, <laughs> Iron Man, like just... Alan Shore. Alan Shore, sure, yeah, Punk's up. They're all coming back. Yeah. A cloud of witnesses there. Oh my gosh. <laughs> We've we already probably traumatically activated so many people, and I'm sorry. We're not going to cut it. This is our way of uh, wit- like- witfully playing with the trauma of the past. Yeah. And saying hello and, to yeah, each yeah. other, because like, it's been some time since we've even yeah. sat down and recorded something. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of bound to happen if you think about it. <laughs> this had to happen. This had to, this had to happen. Speaking of... <laughs> deterministic qualities of living totally what are we going to talk about today so well i don't know because we talked about we talked about not having a plan of what to talk about yeah like any good podcast (laughs) which i guess to give listeners the the context we have started writing oh yeah we we've we've put fingers to, to keys to keys to ink on a virtual screen yep and we I guess got one paragraph in and said, "Well, well, dad gum. <laughs> this is going to be tricky." We should talk about this <laughs> because really, the first and uh, yeah, as we sat down with like a first paragraph, an intro paragraph, it became apparent that there's potential landmines everywhere in this conversation, even before anything's said. Yeah, and one of those landmines is we sort of took for granted that we're trying to make a leap that therapeutically and and i would even say like in the humanities of life which therapy is an art Mm -hmm. as much as it is a science yep it makes perfect sense it's easy to do you can make a a compare and contrast connection between polyvagal theory and uh, the mythology of the bible without any burden of being right or wrong right or or wrong but the second you start writing about it all of these virtual others come flooding into that space of, 
Well, are, are we trying to claim some sort of like absolute truth that connects the two? Mm-hmm. Is there a right, a wrong, objective reality? Like, it, there's like a burden on the paper to then like address the potential like activation of yeah. what language can provoke in other people. Yeah. And so then it was like, well, how are we going to talk about, how are we going to disarm this first problem, which is I love that language. Yeah. talking about reality in all of its dynamics, both the like story and mythological reality, which is like yeah. very real. Right. And also the grounded biological scientific reality, which is also very real. Yeah. And I feel like this, and this is an invitation to the listeners as well to like get into your like, I feel like we're tethering the super deep and super high mm. in this conversation. Like, it it may come across as like a heady thing, but I think that's a that's the fault of the language that's been developed to speak to what we're getting ready to talk about, not yeah. the felt reality. Yeah, I like that because in this space that we're now going to have for however long this episode is we're going to actually like pull back the curtains of how we experience reality really Mm -hmm. like no matter what it is there are things going on i almost think about it like we talk about the intersubjective space and you know we've talked about taping a square on the floor so it gives it a visual space to be talked about realized observed yeah Make exactly real. Yeah. made real um what goes unrealized yeah so often or mm-hmm. so much of the time and i i think we're doing something very similar with this where yeah, we're true. talking about what's in between all the time mm-hmm. um so even just like remembering back to your Oh gosh, my brain just went in like five different directions. But remembering back to your graduate training in in therapy, there are so many assumptions coming into the transmission of that information from the instructor to you in every class, um, even an underlying assumption for whatever discipline you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Then even further back, a series of assumptions about the field of psychology that kind of birthed every other mental health discipline so working in the subjective working in the mental health uh field there are so many assumptions just based in the history of science of how that really came about and what that means Mm -hmm. and so when we talk about something like polyvagal theory there's so many assumptions that went into the making of that that aren't addressed because again it's hard to speak to it yeah. like as much as you would need to, to really clarify. Yeah. Um, this is going to be a tough episode. Yeah. And I'll jump in just a second. Yeah. Cause I think like the, I think there's something to the, the compulsion to find the origin point. Like where, what's the essence of anything? And oh, like polyvagal yeah. theory wouldn't be the beautiful theory it is if there wasn't some assumptions made on like taking for granted the origin point Mm -hmm. the essence of all of life it had to make some assumptions to get to where it is just like um evolutionary theory Mm -hmm. just like i don't know social cultural theories Mm -hmm. developmental theory yeah yeah it all has to like and and i think that's important and that's maybe the tension we're kind of holding in this paper is that like I think people, when we, when people talk about the Bible, it's, it's like, that's different from polyvagal theory, just in like how they one, experience how it. they are yeah, and like what they're trying to do. But then two, like the essence of them. <laughs> but I think what we're trying to say is like, they both come from a point of deep subjective assumptions mm-hmm. and, and that presuppose a trajectory for the evolution of the species they're describing. Yeah. And, and that you could spend your whole lifetime playing that game mm-hmm. and not really get 
far, I think. Yeah. I think you'd you'd get somewhere. That's cool. Right. But for the paper to write and for clinicians and sessions, like, yeah, ride the waves of those assumptions that mm-hmm. like there's something beautiful that can emerge if we just kind of say, maybe there's a and this is the language that we'll dive into in the article we'll get to. Maybe there's a primary essential quality. Yeah, there's an easy way to divide this into the primary and secondary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Maybe there's a primary, or another way of saying it is maybe there's an objective reality. Or absolute reality. Yeah. But we only know it through secondary means, or we only know objective reality through subjectivity. Our perspective. Yeah. Perceiving of the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Which that, I just... I don't want to spin up too soon, but that right there, I mean, one of the ways that I, that I, that I sometimes like think about these assumptions is in, if you're going to build a house, modern kind of living assumes that, well, I'm going to hire people to do that likely. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to implicitly trust their various expertise to make this home the way that i want it to and to to you know give it the space to hold Mm. what i intended to hold which could be family or whatever there's already so many assumptions in that of trusting the other to have the expertise to do this work and Mm. to know how to source and procure the various materials that are going to go into the construction of the house Mm -hmm. which (laughs) <laughs> I feel like I'm a broken record now, which presupposes that all of those materials have come together in the way that they're supposed to, like yeah. that the brick is actually being held together in the way that we think brick should, yeah. that cement will work the way we think cement will, <laughs> yeah. that wood will hold itself together and bend and move and age the way we think it will. Like every material, when you build a house, you assume that it's going to be what you think it is. Yeah. And that it's going to work the way that it does. Yeah. Necessary for you to then have what you want out mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, this is a hot take. I don't know if I've actually shared this with you yet. So this will be maybe oh, your first time hearing fresh. this. But um, I, I had a client discussing nature versus nurture. And one of the things we kind of collaboratively came to is maybe, maybe what we're nurturing is just the past nurtured nature. So, like, what I experience as natural to me is just the nurtured nature of past generations, which yeah. feels right, like totally. a developmental, evolutionary kind of trajectory and perspective. Uh-huh. Epigenetical. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then what that kind of does in this conversation as well is it says, like, just because something, like, just because we might be, to use your metaphor, tapping into the wisdom of the first person who learned about and discovered ways to talk about bricks (laughs) (laughs) doesn't mean that they have nothing to contribute and connect with with the person who knows how to do steel work nowadays right like they 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 have their expertise they have their wisdoms and just because we know how to work with steel now and Mm -hmm. change the elements doesn't mean that the the brick builders of the past don't have something to offer us yeah um there's a truth in both mm-hmm. and they can connect even if they feel seemingly opposing yeah or seemingly different or, or competing yeah oh okay so that like word i feel like is a good segue into giving context to the readers of like the article we'll talk about today is an article that when we were writing you know how do we you know we didn't want to use language of absolute objective subjective yeah, because re- relative and still think that that will prime the readers distract. in a way that yeah, yeah takes away from the intention and flow of the article. Yeah. So then you got your beautiful little reader's hands <laughs> on an so article cool. that really discusses, I think, objective, subjective, um, yeah. absolute, relative. Yeah. In this article, I found in my... Um, literature review process for my dissertation, Hmm. um, which is looking specifically at the 
pressure to conform to the quantification and medicalization of mental health. Yeah. Yeah. So thinking qualitative, quantitative mm-hmm. research, which throw back to some good sessions we had about ABTs yeah. back in the day. Yeah. Um, but really that provides what feels like to us, and I guess I'm speaking for you, so I assume this is true, but... Uh, We're talking about assumptions. Yeah. So like, <laughs> yes. presuppositions at all. Um, it's a way of talking about the relationship to truth without mm-hmm. um, spinning off into feeling the burden of proof about... You know, let's talk about the uh, history of etymology and, yeah. you know, the waves of thought there. It's like, yeah. no, we can just talk about, like, qualitative versus quantitative and be supported by this amazing article. Yeah. Um, in a way that says, like, there are primary and secondary realities. Realities. Qualities, etc. Yeah. yeah. And there's ways that we try to quantify uh-huh. qualia or qualitative worlds of phenomena experience yeah yeah and that is both necessary and limiting Mm. and like you what made me spin up on this was thinking like you use the word competition yeah and i think one of the kind of parts of this article is they have a quote from uh tulin i think uh oh i've lost it now um oh yeah yeah toolman um and the question was, why do these two tr- traditions, why these two traditions were not seen from the beginning as complementary rather than in competition? Mm. And I think that's like a maybe a tension that spans throughout the the article of like, is it possible for quantitative and qualitative? Yeah. That's on page eight. Mm. Uh, for these two ways of knowing or ways of expressing a certain experience and knowing can they be in complementarity or do they have to be in competition is there a need for one or the other and the paper is a fascinating and i guess we should name the paper yeah um do you want to do that yeah so um the work is from uh jordana ivanovich from um University of Belgrade, Serbia, and the article is called Toward a Social History of Qualitative Research. Um, just a preface on, on that. The, the title caught my eye immediately, um, and when I read the abstract, I was like, I can't wait to... <laughs> I don't read full articles very often. Um, I'm like parsing through and finding different pieces and trying to understand the yeah, gist yeah. Um, to know if I want to put them in a category of like, spend more time on this or, you know, assume there's more to be read there or whatever. Um, but this one, I was like, okay, I'm going to sit down. Digest. Yeah. Soul focus. Do not disturb is on. I'm not thinking about the rest of my stuff. I'm just going to experience and encounter this article. Yeah. Because what a fascinating invitation it is to tell a social history of the development of the qualitative research paradigm mm-hmm. which is exactly like my interest as a whole um but and the 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 you know the modifier of toward an invitation to move you know i just loved it so yeah anyway when it, and it- it feels like it really connects to some of the episodes where we were talking about the limitations of random control trials and uh, exclusion criteria and all of these ways in which the quantitative has to be so rigid yeah. that it necessarily will miss some of the non-rigid and flexible dynamics of life. Yeah, And if we can hold that awareness, I think we can come to the affordances and limitations of both ways of knowing yeah and i think just the way you said it there there's nothing wrong with that until you do something with it that it wasn't fit or representative of yeah um like predict an outcome Mm -hmm. this is a a major problem within evidence-based treatments is that because of what happened with some people some of the time before we're going to make a prediction 
and then based on how that interaction goes support or reject mm-hmm. that prediction yeah and that then goes on to represent a variable or like a uh, an amount of trust in that process to create that outcome mm-hmm. and that's where familiarizing yourself with the series of assumptions that are baked into that process it becomes egregious how objectifying that outlook is yeah when you consider the phenomenon and essence of the subjects involved yeah yeah while at the same time like if it's used to say things it's not meant to say yeah egregious if it's used to provide and this is my like yeah compulsion is if it's used to provide a framework yeah it it can be incredibly helpful yeah the house stands yeah like thank goodness like yes. yeah, yeah the brick and the cement they come together this is great and yeah. it stands which if you're if you're thinking about like you know using myths and scientific fact in therapy mm-hmm. like we're really talking about both like yeah. the scientific fact isn't meant to tell us universal truths of predictive things nor are like stories of mm-hmm. myths and religions and yeah. and uh, probably stepping on someone's toes saying that yeah. but like that that and that's okay there is a quality of asking the question what are they intended to say yeah which is like a kind of like getting into maybe some primary like wandering but then finding the secondary statement that emerges from the two feels much more supportive but you don't get there if you and what i love about this article is like you don't get there if you don't know that the quantitative like compulsion is historically just like beneficial for social movements particularly those that are capitalist in nature yes and rely on like a power differential production yeah top and bottom yeah it's essential yeah yeah and what i love about us working through this and this is why we decided to record this episode is that this is a process of learning how to talk Mm -hmm. um about what we're wanting to talk about and you and I being in our kind of just collaborative space of discovering the vernacular we want to use in the article, that's a big part of, of research just in general is how are you going to talk about whatever it is you're trying to talk about? Mm-hmm. And what implications do each words and the semantic connections they make have for your reader, for your intended outcome mm-hmm. of the article? Like, be thoughtful about that because Mm -hmm. what we get to do now after going through this together is apply a way of talking to both the myth to both myths of polyvagal theory and christianity yeah and and the, the the origin story of christianity to see not a competition but a series of claims and worldview creations that stem from a mutual telling of those stories yeah yeah, yeah. I, I'm feeling the kind of instinct or kind of impulse then to also kind of, because it's coming to my mind as well, in writing those first couple paragraphs, like one thing I felt was this need to make clear what we mean when we say myth. Because the kind of common mm-hmm. vernacular usage of that is that myth means it's fake. Yeah, or at least it's a it's a derogatory kind yeah. of like yeah yeah you know don't don't worry. myth busters exactly or yeah, like, yeah, like yeah they're fanciful you know wise tales yeah children's stories yeah whereas i think myths are so powerful because they are real in their experience but not real maybe in the like genuine primary way mm-hmm. like polyvagal theory is real and in a way it's not right and so it's it is kind of mythological people use it in many different ways and that's yeah when okay. somebody says ventral they don't i would almost guarantee you they don't have the ventral <laughs> 
direction neurophysiologically in their mind. Yeah. They're talking about social connection. Yeah. But they're using a word. And that really is the myth of polyvagal theory. Like it, not in any way of saying like it can be debunked, but it's even right there. Like the critics mm -hmm. of the em em empirical modality came to my doorstep. But <laughs> with that, humans do this mm -hmm. because we are subjective. We form relationships with the objective world around us and create meaning which then over time is what myth becomes. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that we had talked about, and I do kind of wish we recorded this, that conversation, because that would have been a really good conversation. We were looking back at what we wrote, yeah, and we're yeah. like, we wrote that? Yeah. <laughs> but one of the things we did talk about was, um, and this actually a shout out to my partner, because she said this like in the park, and it just like blew my mind. LOL. But she, she was saying, um, like, a myth is just a story that has been told enough so that it can become whatever you want. And that isn't to diminish the story. Or what it becomes. Or what it becomes. It's to actually see that it's actually more beautiful and more powerful. That's the point. <laughs> yeah. And like I think if we kind of tether that to polyvagal theory, like state story follows state. So people's experiences inform their stories. But the stories of experience inform our mythologies which reform us yeah. into different states of being and understanding. And, and this is why, well, yeah, that's the point of this Go whole with thing. It. Yeah. Um, ooh. We're just two writers <laughs> in a cafe talking about how the heck we talk about complex Dang. realities. But this is like what you just said to me is, is shown in the power of belief. Mm. it's not just and this is what i think you know is so misunderstood about people of faith is that it's not just an intellectual ascension it is a felt and lived and experienced reality it, it's not making any claim in an, in that way to an mm. absolute truth or like well how do you know and if you can't see it and you can't feel it and you can't touch it is it real like that that's like way down the road don't yeah. worry about that. Yeah. Watch how this comes alive when it's just spoken and shared between two humans. Yeah. That's the whole thing. Yeah. And why I think for for me even, you know, my interest in doing this this paper, you know, Christianity is a part of my story because I saw it as not a member of it at first. Mm. Mm. Like I wasn't raised in it at first, you know, I I think that was the part of the whole thing that was so captivating to me. It was just like, they're living in this world that is unfamiliar to me. Yeah. And they seem to consistently treat each other in a specific way and, and talk in a specific way. And at that time, I think it just represented for me what I hadn't had. And so it's just like, dang, I want that myth. Like, mm -hmm. I need to learn this world of experience. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so it's just so captivating. Um, I think it was when the object turned uh, that I then was disenchanted from the myth. Yeah, and, you know, yeah, yeah. When it had to be quantified. Yeah, yeah. Then it became and taught and yeah, yeah. you know, but like quantified the to the point of like that's the point, right? And I think that's part of what you know the author Yovanovitch, what she's kind of trying to communicate. It feels like she's pushing towards like quantitative was was you know it has a sort of element of competition mm -hmm. baked into the social history of it totally that didn't I, my take on it is like it didn't have to be there that it, it was it, put there yeah yeah it was put there to make very clear traction in a direction yeah but it 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 you know it takes the phenomena of experience and says now phenomena has to be in this form yeah rather turned than, into data yeah yeah and the article goes on and we i don't know if we'll go through it the way we have done our other articles before but the article goes on to to posit that the compulsion to do that to turn subjective quality into objective datum 
was based in the need for credibility. Oh, what is that? Um, quantification and credibility and certainty. Mm. That was the other. Mm-hmm. So just in our social history of the, you know, um, great enlightenment and the Renaissance where human beings were speaking in ways that seemed to demand certainty, credibility, and base all of our predictions and security measures on those things. Yeah. That's where quantification really became, uh, I think it colluded with our biology in a way that says you can secure security through this. Mm. If you can quantify it, you can measure it, then you can predict an outcome that involves that variable. And I think our evolution took that and said, that's exactly what I've been looking for. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. I need to know how to predict this outcome. And that's where quantification, I think, came along and said, I'll I'll do that for you. Yeah. Yeah, they talk about, uh, this just feels kind of like a something that stuck out to me is, uh, and I think listeners will be kind of familiar with this language, particularly in the modern uh, field of therapy with uh, Damasio's like Descartes' air um, yeah. book and different things. But um, the author talks about how Descartes became a master of doubt and ended as an advocate of certainty, which completely excluded doubt. So like at the start, Descartes was masterful and doubting, but then the complex intolerance of the other and the different, yeah, and the quali- qualia of life, yeah, the emotional I feel, therefore I am, rather than I think, think therefore, therefore I, am. I am, yeah, it became intolerable. So then he became kind of an advocate for certainty, yeah, and I think that kind of complex turn uh, feels so um, real. Um, I think of. I just listened to a podcast and I think this was going to come up, but a podcast, uh, shout out to one of our favorites, Why Theory. Oh, nice. Uh, they did an episode on the uncanny and they were talking about like Freud's idea of the uncanny is not that it's different and separate and other, it's that it's like us, mm-hmm. but different. And that's what makes something uncanny and like horrific. And I think that's. I think that's maybe the tension we're wrestling with, with bringing together polyvagal theory and Genesis, is yeah. that they're, they can say similar things, but because they're different, it creates a tension. Mm-hmm. Because polyvagal well, theory has such a scientific community surrounding it. Yeah. And, and a, a background unspoken of quantitative theory yeah, polyvagal theory is very qualitative, but yeah, but it's because it's been taken up by therapists. Yes, I because it has a social history of yeah, and humanists are applying it. Yeah, and yeah, that's what I think is really important. Like it would be amazing to do a, an analysis of the evolution of polyvagal theory socially because mm. it existed as a quantitative theory of bioevolution to support our our heart's relationship to our lungs to our overall health. And to social connection. Like, well, and that's that came kind of as, I, I think, you know, I'm just thinking about Porges in um, the series of articles that we read. It was first to look at how does heart rate and, you know, heart, heart rate variability and sinus arrhythmia yeah, in neonates, sense. like, how can you predict their overall health and stability and whether or not they'll going to live yeah if there's diminishing returns yeah like yeah how is that possible and then just through modulating the vagus nerve that was where you started to see these children live mm-hmm. that those who did not have you know a, a vagal nerve focused treatment not live mm-hmm. and so that was where he i think got the start of the idea of like there's something to this vagus nerve and, and how it syncs up all of our system and through later writing that's where the social evolution, I think, theory mm. language came out that, oh, this is actually, this makes sense because, and that's the theory of polyvagal theory, is that this makes sense because humans have evolved the autonomic nervous system to be socially mediated. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole, yeah, that's the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. 
um, I feel like I took you off a point. Yeah, and and I felt for a second like I had a point, and then I don't know what it is anymore. So I feel like a, oh, the uncanny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like it. Like I think that's maybe like what this. I don't know. I feel like when I think of why, I, just I came to the table of like, let's write this. It was, if the uncanny can be embraced, we learn a lot. Is can you say, like, let's talk about the uncanny a little bit, like what that means. Yeah, the uncanny, uh, the word in German for uncanny is unheimlich, hmm. which uh, means like a homely, like the un is like the negation of the um, homeliness, heimlich, mm -hmm. um, something that feels like similar or connective. Yeah. And it's like the distortion of that. Yeah. So then canny. It's and like, like uncanny. It's like mm -hmm. unhomeliness. It, yeah. It's like un, unfamiliar, but because, and, and that's eerie because it's yeah, familiar. Yeah, like, exactly. Why are, why are horror films scary? It's because it's playing with, it's a similar reality, but then distorted. And yeah. so then I'm scared. Yeah. I'm horrified by it. It's uncanny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think like, if you can embrace it, like they go on in that episode to talk about like horror, then if you can embrace horror and like look at the horror movie genre, genre. Mm -hmm. of seeing like, oh, this is a genre, not that's just meant to make you feel like shit, <laughs> but it's meant to like externalize internal realities yeah. so that you see it. Like right. that people feel haunted by demons, that pe people feel haunted by ghosts, that there are transgenerational trauma that they talk mm -hmm. about, like mm -hmm. it with, um, uh not inheritance but what's that movie hereditary hereditary yeah. yeah um and and i think like in therapy the embracing of the tethering of these two myths or two truths or two sciences the science of genesis and the science of polyvagal theory creates like this like moment of like deep beltness and understanding and complexity yeah, yeah. where they complement each other because they're saying things in different ways and then it feels right together. Mm -hmm. But they're, the fact that they're so different is I think what feels hard to write about. It's mm. uncanny to talk about. Yeah. Because you're trying to make a big leap. Right. In their similarity and difference. Yeah. Um, culturally too. Like, and I think part of that is like the cultural response of we live in a modern age. It's very quant qualitatively driven. Uh, data analytics and yeah, quantitatively efficient. driven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, the analytics efficiency. Oh yeah. Um, Optimization. Yeah, 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 yeah. What good does? But I think that's like the com. That's the tension and repression I want to point out with the paper, is that for all of our modern thinking of like how silly qualitative realities are. We still have like flourishing religious communities that are founded on the belief, like what you were talking about earlier. Yeah. But it feels like there's a disintegration of mind around that. Totally. A splitting instead of like a tethering, a, co a competitive divorce mm -hmm. instead of like a complementary wedding or marriage yeah. of the two. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that though this won't be a a key feature of the paper. Um, like, I don't think we need to get into the history of qualitative and quantitative, you know, it, it's just informing our language. Mm. Um, but those, those arguments and the different, um, like declarations for a place at the table of empirical study, those matter. Um, like so intimately. And I, I think just to show kind of where, where the rub is with this, I, I think this is actually why burnout is a thing. Mm. And this is kind of the oh, one of, say more on that. yeah, this is kind of like the, one of the postulates of my dissertation is that of course we as therapists burn out we have not been ourselves since before the profession emerged. Mm. What I mean by that is you take people that have a calling to one another and a desire to help and a passion to help, 
and you say that the way you have to do that is through the quantification and medicalization of the human organism, which implies if a person says, I'm sad, you do this to them mm. and they get better. Mm -hmm. And if they don't, you do it again mm -hmm. and they get better. And if they don't, you do it again and they get better. Mm -hmm. That that's how you are validated in that longing and desire that you came to the field with. Yeah. And then you go out and you get put into agencies or wherever that worship that so diligently that it's about productivity and outcomes and predictability. Mm -hmm. And of course you're going to burn out. That's not what you said you were interested in before, but that's the package and object that was available yeah. to inhabit mm -hmm. with that passion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does that? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know what comes up in my mind and maybe this is if I was to like maybe ride into Jovanovic as like an example in the Western world, I feel like, um, you know, the Huberman Lab podcast is a great example of this, the impressiveness of quantitative oh. work. Yeah. That he can just like rattle off things that feel like they will change your life. Yeah. And you're right to some degree. Yeah. That, you know, the facts he says, the studies he cites, like the, the specification which with which he discusses the How human organism can, yeah yeah is beautiful and very productive yeah i i'm not saying he should stop because that would make me very sad yeah <laughs> but what i am saying is that even he admits when he's in interviews with others like oh you know more about this than i do you're mm -hmm. the therapist mm -hmm. you're the one who actually works with this yeah i'm just a researcher i'm just studying it yeah but his a podcast gets like taken as if it has all of the complexities of qualitative life. Yeah, do this. Yeah. And they'll change. Yeah. If if that were actually the reality, everyone who listens to that podcast should be the epitome of humanity. Like yeah. should be living their best life. But that's not we can't just survive alone on quantitative work and doing yeah 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 we have to be supported by kind of this long lost identity of therapists and healers and humanity yeah and I, it's so native oh sorry yeah well i was gonna say like i think this is also why you and i are both drawn to like neuropsychoanalysis yeah that neuroscience is now going back yeah to these like primary figures like Freud um, and Lacan and all of these like psychoanalytic. Mitchell and yeah. Yeah. Um, I was even thinking of like Winnicott and yeah. um, uh, Kernberg. Yeah. They're going back to these people who were right, talking about things that aren't real, oh. but giving structure to them to help people through life. And neuroscientists are going back and saying like, oh, you are actually like really right. And my theory gets better if I'm with you. Oh, man. And I can't wait to re-listen to this episode because I was just like, <laughs> just lit my nervous system up. Okay. Like, Winnicott, you're talking about things that aren't real. <laughs> He's not. But it's so real. Yes. Yeah. That, and it's that's so You don't crazy. fucking have an ego. Yeah. Sorry for the language. <laughs> I'm, I'm just excited This now. is going to be explicit now. Yeah. This, this podcast it. is getting an explicit tag. <laughs> All right, children. I think cover it's like your ears. Bombs. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, you get a limit. I think you get. Okay, cool. So that's one of them. So we got I said seven two. more. <laughs> Six more. I said one earlier, but it slipped by. Quantitatively. Yeah. <laughs> the quality of it felt right. Um, <laughs> it was uncanny. <laughs> it was uncanny how right it felt. Um, <laughs> yeah, but like you don't have an ego, you don't have a super ego, you don't have an id, but the quality of those concepts, the mythology of them. Yeah, are so supported nowadays by the neuroscience of implicit and explicit processes of the subcon subcortical and cortical brain. Yeah, that it's like, oh, you try to talk about subcortical networks without using the word unconscious. Yeah, you're done. You can't. Yeah. So you need these qualitative realities, these secondary ways yeah. of talking about things. Yeah. 
And these people were doctors. Yeah. Like that's, that's, I mean, to me, that is just like, you want to talk about like barrier breakers, social advocates. I mean, going so far outside of the purview of the field to say something qualitative at the time. Yeah. I mean, just unbelievable. Yeah. Well, even like, I think the burden of maybe what we're talking about is also on the fact that we're claiming, we're remembering, I guess, to to put it more lightly, like we're remembering that polyvagal theory is still secondary. It is still a secondary way of knowing. Yeah. It is, it, because it feels more quantitative, even, even though that's kind of debatable too, it's still secondary in its kind of like formulation of, you know, we're just trying to talk about mm-hmm. something that mm-hmm. everything else is trying to talk about too. Mm-hmm. Um, who we are as humans and what are we doing here? Yeah. How do we function optimally? Um, that I think the Genesis story is also trying to tackle. Yeah. And um, I remember back to some, one of our earliest conversations about this paper, like before it was even an idea that maybe we should write something together on it, um, was about shame. Mm. And working with the population that we are surrounded by and a part of, um, shame being at tension with an existential belonging that it's so divisive on Mm. the unconscious and subconscious levels Mm -hmm. that if I do bad, I am bad. And if I am bad, my life will end. Mm -hmm. That mythologically needs to be talked about. And I, I think that's where the two sides of this conversation really came from of like let's talk about it next to each other the christian origin story and Mm -hmm. uh, an evolutionary take on our social nature Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and how the the nurtured characters of these myths yeah in one text are de-shamed still by the more modern text and I can see myself in the characters, so then I can yeah. feel the the de-shaming of the marriage of the two, right? Or the integration. I don't know. I won't use marriage anymore. That feels, I don't ghosty. know, ghosty. Ghosty. But like the idea that bringing them to together like allows me to project into it mm-hmm. myself and really understand. Yeah, I think. Yeah. So we, I, I'm caught in attention because we really haven't talked about the article. I'm which still is... on the title page. <laughs> but I also... And I've highlighted more on this thing than any article I've read this year, yes, hands down. Easily. Easily. And I love that I got to read the noted version. Your oh, noted yeah. version. That was, that was a pleasant surprise. Which maybe we should make that... Available? Maybe we should make that available oh, like if people want to... Vulnerable. Our, that is vulnerable. Yeah. I guess if you one hour do you want to read the version that I marked up? (laughs) (laughs) If so, (laughs) check out the show notes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I guess I just don't know what to do because of the time (laughs) and it's forty seven minutes. Because also one of the things this article did was inspire us to start the paper with. An italicized. I think you should read it. Story. I think you should. We read should it. read it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, why would we not? If we were just talking, we were just speaking from the inspiration. Okay, that's true. That's true. That's true. Okay. Remember to go slow. Yes. So, this is to think of the paper. Oh, I think. Well, there's such precious space in this moment. Yeah. So, yeah. What I was thinking was okay. maybe just like not read it yet, but to think of like the idea that we, we, well, what was going to be the start of the paper was a qual, what I felt was a quantitative and objective compulsion mm-hmm. to prove something, to justify, to justify something. Yeah. And then to go on and say it, which was going to, 
what turned what totally was one paragraph augmented. as an intro turned into like I think it was like two pages. Yeah, and it just felt not right. Yeah. So then, and you talked. I remember talking to you about it before we had the writing session where this came from. That it just fell off. Mm-hmm. Like it stopped your your creativity. It stopped your yeah your flow. And that's it. Okay. Like that's important because in the in the um, article she talks about the the quali- quantitative compulsion yeah. or push to to produce claims that are right right oh yeah stifles creativity totally that it that it takes away from the creative act and potential because then the the qualia of life the experiential bits essence yeah have to be formed into data data and that's exactly what you're experiencing i didn't even think of that yes yeah yeah and so then it was like okay well let's how do we say something quantitative but maybe in a qualitative way yeah and so then we i mean it almost felt serendipitous but we you just wrote something yeah in a matter of five minutes and it was like that's it that's pretty good yeah that checks all the boxes (laughs) yeah yeah so that was the problem Oh, that's so cool. I wish we had, I wish every article had a EBT episode to go along with it. Like talking about the writer's perspective of telling the story that ended up in the manuscript. Mm. That would be so sick. That would be sick. Like, why did you choose to talk about it this way? Mm. And Mm -hmm. what problems did you encounter? Yeah. Maybe that's like goals for the podcast. Every time we write, we, or every time we choose an article, we talk to the, the author. Ooh. Do you remember writing this? That's like, when EBT gets big. Yeah. <laughs> Support the Patreon. <laughs> Shameless plug. Yeah, if you think that's a cool idea, here's how we get there. <laughs> Speaking of quantitative need. And capitalism. Yep. And capitalism. Yep. Support it. <laughs> Give us your money so we can become right. big. Because um, <laughs> we'll get to reach more people and we'll get to Right, talk right, right. We'll yeah. get to talk to people. Um, which is also so anyway. Shout out why I loved uh, the Bruce Eckert episode on Notice That was because it it felt like a oh, it felt like the shattering of a power dynamic. Totally, but loved it. Anyway, that's it's I guess that's in, there. that's in line with yeah. this. Oh, for sure. It, it, it qualitatively grounded in the same reality. Yeah. Well, okay. So in the last like ten minutes, yeah. Uh, 15 minutes maybe how do you want to go through this article well are you gonna read it i thought we weren't gonna read it i didn't want to read it yet i wanted to speak a bit to okay 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 i think we totally should read it and like my drop like end the conversation (laughs) (laughs) and that's it go think about it yeah um okay yeah yeah so because i think it i think beautifully like unplanned i think it actually does showcase and maybe we can deal with this article the next time yeah yeah like yeah. And, and, and go through it more yeah. more diligently but i think this what you're getting ready to read uh plays with the tension mm-hmm. yeah in a non-prescriptive way yeah yeah i think what i would want people to like go with the intention and in listening into this is and it's short so you, you won't listen long but <laughs> is hold like or anchor to the idea of complementarity not competition yeah so this like holding of seemingly opposing realities together that exist in harmony rather than one or the other i like yeah that coexist yeah i think that's that'll be highlighted in this yeah okay so listen up. <laughs> go, go slow with your audiobook voice. Like. Yes, 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 yes. <clears throat> <clears throat> I'll try to get my uh, Ian oh. McGilchrist. Oh my god! Um, oh man, <laughs> we've been when the tablet having, betrays you. I've been having technical difficulties with my tablet, and of course, at this moment, it would. Okay, here we go. Two people have been on a path for many days. Before the horizon, the first person says. I see an oasis waiting for us ahead. The second person says, We haven't seen anything like that in days. We have no reason to believe this will be any different. 
the two must stop along the path to rest enough to keep going. The first person says, I know we haven't seen anything like this before, but if we stop, we'll die. The second person responds, but if we don't stop to rest, we will die then too. After resting for some time, the first person rises to return to the path, and after encouraging the second person to join, they soon realize it wasn't a mirage, but a reality. So, channeling our inner parabolic <laughs> natures, <laughs> natures, finding some what feel like a very qualitative way of expressing the necessity of the two truths. Yeah. The one that says, we haven't seen anything like this. I.e. quantitative. Yes, i.e. polyvagal theory. Yeah. And then the other that says, like, no, I believe and I see. I'm having an experience. Yeah. Like, it's out there. But the tension between, like, in order to get to the oasis, I guess, I don't know. Should I, I uh, yeah, describe I all this? Okay. Yeah, yeah. In order to get to the oasis, the first person can't just go without listening to the reality of if they don't stop they'll die yeah but then like it's also like if they just stop they'll die they'll die so both persons are true both are right and without each other they wouldn't exist you don't get to paradise yeah you don't get to the oasis ahead yes yeah which i think is like in the in the article like you you won't get to a depth as deep of a depth in meaning and meaning and understanding if you just go for one or the other polyvagal theory or the genesis account of yeah human flourishing right and connection <laughs> yeah yeah but if you if you sit with both and you walk with both you'll find an oasis yeah yeah and i think that's where what i hope in the discussion section of the work, we can remind the reader that this isn't about defending or an apologetic defense of Christianity, mm, but no. a showcase of humans' chronic myth-making and inhabiting essence. Yeah. That there are so many examples of this. Yeah. A worldview held and felt and spoken to by groups of people that give them guiding frameworks, ways to understand themselves and the community they're in, what will be after life, what was before life, yeah. like all of these things. Yeah. And PVT in the same way is not the only, you know, beacon of the quantitative means of discovery. It's just an example of, yes, yeah. that first side is correct. And so is the second side that now can detail so much of the 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 particulars of how all of this came to be yeah and that without one or the other we'll be aimless and our head in the sand or up in the clouds and devoid of of reality yeah when well, how like what a terrible i almost said another cuss word but i'll say that <laughs> what a terrible um power play as a therapist because uh, part of the reason we're writing this isn't like our defense of Christianity, but Which more is, of like... Isn't at all. <laughs> no. Yeah. It's, it's because the Christian myth and story is so prevalent in the lives of the clients we work with just based on geographical Yeah. And their, space. their lineage. Yeah. Like the myth is so... Oh, like um, alive. Yeah. It, it, it's there... It's in unconsociously the it's in between. like yeah in yeah. The, in them even if it's never named yes <laughs> like there are these good and evil going tendrils on yeah them. yeah 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 and like how terrible it is for me as the clinician to not be willing to understand that that is real for them but then to suppose and bring my expertise and say that polyvagal is real for them yeah like I'm asking them to believe my myth about them. Yeah. But I'm not a willing to invade and listen to and believe their myth about them. Yeah. That feels 
terrible. Especially when the subjective mechanism of change in therapy is the co-creation of connection. Yeah. Wherein we honor one another's myths and come together to find a space. Yeah. Totally unique. Yes. Um, like I can't, I mean, to count it would feel arbitrary, like how many times while well, I was raised in the church or, you know, family believed in Christianity, like those come up in virtually every one of my sessions. Mm -hmm. Every one. Like that's why it's so, I think, exciting and interesting to do this work. It's like, okay, well, let's spend some time with what it would mean to really examine some of the implications of that as it pertains to the unfolding of healing. Yeah. 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 And I would hope that there would be other people in the world who are doing the same thing with other religious mythologies. Like, yeah. Please. Yeah. <laughs> if you're not, do it. Yeah. Um, and that's the, I think the, you know, suggestion for future research is like, mm -hmm. let's apply this other construct of yeah. comparing a complementarity to the therapeutic relationship and, how it sorts mm -hmm. itself out mm -hmm. yeah. yeah yeah the the thing that comes to my mind just maybe to close is like the the pensive in harry potter like the dumbledore and harry like a dream together yeah and that's how they get what they need not because dumbledore does it or harry does it no they but couldn't they do, it. do it together yeah they couldn't do it separate yeah yeah. Because and I love Dumbledore. I can't remember the exact line there, but Dumbledore says like that this dream has been bothering me. Mm, mm -hmm. This one has always stuck with me. And in that, I rem like I I feel that he's like I don't know what to make of it in myself, but I know something is there. Yeah. But I don't know what it is, mm -hmm. and so they look at it together, and that's when it unfolds farther than it had just within Dumbledore. Yeah. Well. Yeah, Harry has to go research. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Harry had to go find a new pragmatic reality in Professor Slughorn, which is yeah. just like a hilarious. Now we're into some weird, <laughs> like, meta imposition of uh, <laughs> Harry Potter in the conversation we're but there, having. But I think that you know, and I think that Harry Potter is playing with this. Yeah, very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The real and the not real. <laughs> The reality of the imaginary. Mm -hmm. Using fixtures of myths from human uh, community. Yeah. That's yeah. why it's so compelling. And like, oh yeah, like that's a really creative way of playing with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know it. Yeah. Yeah. Just real fast, I guess, for listeners, this is a little tidbit. Um, <laughs> if you don't believe in this, um, <laughs> if you don't, I guess, believe in the fact that the imaginary is both real and, and not useful real. Oh, and yeah. not real too uh everything everywhere all at once is a funny like another play i do i do time jumping with my clients in emdr just like they do in that movie like yeah. i'm asking a client to imagine an alternate universe where they actually did you know embody something way. different yeah that changed the fabric of the reality and then they do it and then they feel better, and then they're changed, and it's like, this wasn't real. <laughs> you didn't actually do that, but you in did it now. In the quantitative sense it, of the word. Yeah, in the quantitative, yes. But in the qualitative and in the, like, secondary evolution. Yeah. Yeah, totally changes. That's what was real. Yeah. Imagined back. Mm-hmm. Remembering the future. <laughs> we could just shotgun these, like, one sentence. <laughs> Yeah. That'll be like the thumbnail for the episode is just like a word cloud of all of these. Like <laughs> that would be funny to see what words would come up for these episodes. Transcript. You could let AI do it, you yeah. know. <laughs> That's true. But then it would take Make away a word the human cloud creative of this transcript. Act. It would do it. It probably would. Oh yeah. <sighs> but I wouldn't get the fingers right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh cool. thanks for joining been along with this process also i would say if you're listening this long you must care in some way about what we're doing or, <laughs> or us as humans or... us or something yeah something has kept you here <laughs> i would say whatever that something is we would love to know it 
Yeah. So like email us, shoot us a message. Um, I guess you could go to our website, Connect Beyond Healing. and Just email us direct. Find, honestly, yeah. if you're listening to this, bridger.falkenstein yeah. <laughs> at beyondhealingcenter.com, caleb.boston at beyondhealingcenter.com. Yep. Just email us direct. We would love to honestly. hear what you're thinking. Also hear if you're doing similar work or you're not, or you have similar clients or you don't. Really, we just love to hear anything yeah. because all information is helpful in this process. So, Co-created. Yeah. You might even get in the footnotes. Oh. oh. <laughs> no promises, but maybe. No, no promises. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. We'll see Who edits this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Anyway. <laughs> Thanks. We hope that you've enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you stay curious and create community around discussing the research that matters most to clinicians and researchers. If you're curious to learn more about something you heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming case conceptualization trainings and community events. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes. Leave us a review and follow us on social media by searching the Evidence-Based Therapist Podcast.